Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. October 26, 2014, episode number 66, Dream a Little Dream. Hello and welcome everyone to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast, episode 66. I'm your host, Kevin England. Cool nights have progressed to cool days with highs in the 50s and 60s and yards filling up with fallen leaves. Fall is in full swing and the first frost of the year is behind us. Hive operations are coming to a close and is the transition time for beekeeper overwintering and that means us getting to our winter projects and springtime dreams. In today's episode we'll progress along a path with notes of closing down the season and dreaming of plans for 2015. Along the way we'll bring you some news, notes, and current events. The agenda for this edition? Wrapping hives with tar paper for overwintering and hive ventilator rings. Supering or natering, discussion around the different techniques for adding boxes to a hive. RFID bees, answering the question, does honey last forever? An NJBA fall meeting recap. Are bees attracted to LED lights? We have the answer. And for good measure, we'll throw in a few more odds and ends. But first, let's hit the local hive report. Nine hives on the property and one nuke, but after this afternoon, the nuke is going to be disowned. All the hives are in pretty good shape. Plenty of stores, plenty of bees. I had one hive that had a high mite load going into fall, and I tried an Apivar treatment on it. The duration for which the product should be in the hive has come to an end, and I'll remove it this weekend. Each of the hives have a hive top feeder on them, which I'll also remove so they can propolize the inner covers down while they are still flying. Since the last episode, I put in the trays in any of my screen bottom boards so they are not open. Check. I have three hive top insulation boxes in the garage, and as I pull the feeders off of the hives, I'm going to pick three hives and put one on each. As for the nuke, it's not going to make it. It went from three frames to one, and yesterday I checked in there, and I was hoping to give it one more chance for growth. No brood, no pollen, just stored nectar and bees. The queen is in there wandering around like a lost soul. For the life of me, I have no clue as to what she's doing, but this nuke is doomed I had notions of putting it in an observation hive, but even that isn't feasible as there is no brood. I suppose I'll just shake them out in the yard and let them try to gather into other hives. I had a thought of combining them with the top bar, but I do not want to put the top bar at risk. Perhaps I try to combine them. They have a war inside the top bar and I lose a lot of bees. I can't risk that. At last check, I think there were about eight frames in the top bar, and I'd hate to compromise even one bee and risk the chance that they can't overwinter. I think they're on shaky ground as it is. So after the activity later today of removing the hive covers and doing what I had just said, I'm done. It's the end of October, and the last time the hives will be open before spring. This time of year to me is like cracking a bottle against the ship and letting them take sail into winter. Bon voyage, girls. Bon voyage. Local hive report done. Check. Before I head into segment number one, let me pass along some contact information and links. You could reach us at kevin at bkcorner.org. Our website, you could probably guess, is www.bkcorner.org, or you can go to bkcorner.com, too. 
When we find things of interest, we post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash beekeeperscorner. And not to be forgotten, we have at last count 224 videos on just about anything beekeeping at the YouTube channel for the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association, youtube.com slash NWNJBA. One last bit of business before segment one. We don't do sponsors and I don't plug for donations. I quietly put a PayPal link on my homepage and it has resulted in some donations. I want to continue to thank those who have made a point to give something to the effort. I used the funds in support of the podcast and it paid my way into the NJBA meeting that I'll talk about later. Simply saying thanks once more for the generosity. For segment number one, we're talking about wrapping hives for an overwinter setup. Wrapping a colony with protective wrap is something that we've never covered on the podcast and something that I don't practice personally, so I don't have any experience with it. I know we've spoken on a number of occasions about the physical process of doing this, but it's new territory, so let's cover how you do it. First and foremost, one thing to consider is, is this a necessary process in the first place? While bees are tropical creatures, they have adapted to colder climates and can survive in sub-zero temperatures. Beekeepers in the far northern states and Canada sometimes wrap hives to compensate for their extreme situations, but most will tell you that bees can survive in a normal Langstroth hive without taking the measure of wrapping in some substrate like tar paper. So why do it at all? Two things are mostly cited. The first one is reduction of wind infiltration and changing the surface of the hive, which is typically white and reflexy heat, to black helps it to absorb and may serve to warm the hive on some sunny days. Now, no amount of wrapping will substitute for a hive that is ill-equipped to make it through the winter. Before wrapping a hive, know that it needs an appropriate amount of bees and stores to get through. A collection of 25 to 30,000 healthy bees are necessary to generate the heat required to get the colony to warmer spring days. If you have one that's 15 to 25,000 bees, you're flirting with destiny and less than 15,000 and you should be considering combining bees for a larger population size. Now wrapped hives are typically three deeps high and have an upper entrance. A significant consideration for overwintering bees is moisture control. Moisture kills bees, not cold. A hive with 30,000 bees can keep the cluster to a functional 55 degrees and even generate enough 95 degree heat in the core to raise brood. But moisture, freezing on the comb, freezing on the inside surfaces of the hive, condensing on the inner roof and dripping on the bees, that is a big problem. The process for wrapping hives I'm going to describe is available on the internet from the University of Minnesota Extension website for honeybees. The guide, which I'll provide a link to, is available as a PDF with the title Wrapping Honeybee Colony for a Northern Winter with Tar Paper. It could be noted that other wrapping materials can be used, and you could even purchase kits to wrap hives that are made out of different substrates. One such one I know of is made from a coroplast plastic material, the stuff they use for real estate signs and candidate signs for elections. So wrapping a hive in tar paper. In the instruction set, they indicate you should have an opening in the top box. They suggest you drill a hole just underneath the front handle. This technique also requires you to put an entrance reducer on the bottom board. The directions call for a 3-inch opening, and it should be facing up. I find that kind of an odd recommendation. 
usually what you have is a entrance reducer has a notch in it. And if you turn it upside down, that means the bees have to crawl up over something to drag a bee out. And I think that's a barrier to getting dead bees out, but that's the instruction set. Or maybe I read it wrong. Okay, so one other preparation is to have a moisture board to put in the top of your hive. This is a Kevin moment. Truth be told, if there's just one thing you want to do, this moisture board thing might be good enough. Especially if tar paper is a bit of overkill in your area. Perhaps the cold isn't really a problem, and you're doing this because you want to give every advantage you can, and quite frankly, that's why many do wrap their hives. But it's expensive and disheartening to lose bees, and putting a moisture board on top is not difficult in any way. It's inexpensive, and it's not a bad management practice wherever you live, or at least I can't think of any cons for doing it. End of Kevin moment. So a moisture board is a porous sheathing material. Many cut it from their commercial product called BuildRite, B-I-L-D-R-I-T-E. You cut it the same size as an inner cover. The material is said to absorb or wick moisture from the inside of the hive and give it back to the outer environment as it seeps out to the edges and outside air. In the case of this setup, it will come out of the top, which is sitting in a space underneath the propped-up outer cover. Start with a roll of tar paper, roll it out, and cut it to 78 inches. This dimension leaves you a few inches to overlap the tar paper once you've gone once around the hive. Wrap it around the hive and secure it at the seam. There's a few ways to do this. You can tack it with tacks. You can nail a board along the whole length. You could staple it. You choose whatever option works for you. Once the tar paper is secure, wrap the overlap over the moisture board on the top of the hive. Think about how you would wrap a Christmas present, but don't cover the whole board. Wait another Kevin moment. I'm so meticulous when I wrap presents. (laughs) The patterns match. The corners all join just like if they were wrapped at the department store. There's never any gaps or patches in my present wrapping. Neat and tidy with a bow on top. In this case, however, you don't want to wrap like Kevin. End of Kevin moment. You actually want the tar paper to be short when it folds over the moisture board on the top. And the moisture board, of course, should be exposed at the top so it can wick away any water that it absorbs. If you wrap it up 100%, you're going to seal in the moisture, and that is bad, bad, bad. Set the outer cover over the moisture board, but make sure you prop it up so you can allow for air to move around and to escape and evaporation to take place. If you seal it down tight, the moisture board won't be able to wick away. Now that you have the tar paper secure, it's time to make sure you keep the openings clear so the bees can get some air and leave to make cleansing flights. You're going to cut away the tar paper where necessary to open up that bottom entrance and the top entrance that you drilled a hole in your box. For the top entrance, you might even want to get creative and consider tacking on two boards in a 90 degree configuration so they have a mini landing board to come back to when they are returning. This isn't a complicated thing to do and what I shared is about all there is to it. Some beekeepers take other approaches such as pushing hives together and wrapping multiples at a time. Bob Kloss nestles up a bunch of nukes boxes and stacks them up to become a nucleus condo. I guess I have to stand corrected on something about that. I thought Bob wrapped his hives, but he assured me he hasn't needed to. So I'll throw this in as a bonus, and it's a description on how to wrap two nucleus colonies per New Jersey master beekeeper, Landy Simone. The goal here is to wrap two nukes together so they can share some heat. And for this, she uses migratory covers. 
This is so the hives can touch. A traditional telescoping cover is not going to work because it's going to butt up against each other at the covers, but not allow the sides of the hives to touch. You place the nukes alongside of each other so they are facing in opposite directions. Another way to say this is that the hive entrances are on opposite ends from each other. Landy wraps her nukes in bubble wrap first and then tar paper. The expectation there is the bubble wrap creates an airspace which will hold the temperature from crossing across. She uses a moisture board just like the method described a moment ago. And one interesting note about this is she cuts a notch in that moisture board so the bees have an upper entrance there at times where the hive is buried in snow. The notch is at the front edge of the moisture board and it should be over the front entrance. So in other words, don't put it on backwards or you'll create a chimney effect where the air will come in the bottom and go out the back and take all the heat out. She puts the migratory cover over the moisture board but props it up so moisture can wick away and the bees can exit that little hole from the top and they'll crawl across and come out the sides if they so desire. So while we're on the topic of different techniques that try to keep heat inside the hive, let me talk about honey bee ventilator or ventilation rims. This is a different alternative to moisture boards. A ventilation rim is a simple piece of equipment that's set at the top of the hive to control either heat or aid in evaporation. Some beekeepers, including yours truly, as I mentioned in the hive, local hive report, have expanded on this notion by taking it one step further and making it a quilt box. I made my rims after seeing the designs at Honey Run Apiaries. And I seem to recall that the website HoneyRunApiaries.com used to provide plans, but I don't think that's the case any longer. They do, however, sell an all-season inner cover, which is similar to the device I made in my garage. So I didn't explain what this is yet, but I'm sure I've talked about it on the show before, so I don't want to go over the top with a lengthy explanation. My guess is one of the episodes has a detailed account of what I'm about to describe, so I'll keep it brief. The piece of equipment that I've made has four sides, and is about six to eight inches high from what I recall. It sits on top of the top box that you're overwintering, and it has holes drilled in the sides and the front. When you drill the holes, you drill them at an upward angle, so if falling rain hits the box, it won't run into the box, it runs off. On the inside of the box, the holes are covered with hardware cloth so that the bees can't go in or out. The Honey Run box has a foam insulation core and so does mine. Where they differ is I've made my box deeper in dimension and left an area for air to collect underneath the insulation core. And I put a queen excluder on the bottom, and between the queen excluder and the foam, I placed newspaper to act like the moisture board discussed earlier. My premise is that heat and moisture from the hive pass into this airspace, hit the insulation, and if it's cool enough, condense and drip on the newspaper. The newspaper will also absorb a lot of moisture and prevent dripping on the bees. The insulation helps to keep all the warmth, sweat equity from the bees from leaking out into the atmosphere. And as I've mentioned in the past, if you had one of these on a hive, and you had a hive without it sitting next to each other and it snows, you're going to notice the one with the insulation cover is going to stay covered with snow on the top, where the other one, it's going to melt through because the heat is escaping out of the top of the box. So the holes in the side are open enough to let the newspaper evaporate moisture and you can control this by taping them off. As I said in the outset, people use these insulation boxes and ventilation rims to control moisture and excess heat. And you can use them in the summertime when it gets really hot and they're bringing in a lot of nectar and they're trying to evaporate it. It helps with the airflow out of the top of the hive. 
So I don't get anything from this plug, but I could tell you that Honey Run sells their all-season inner covers for around $15. And if you're not handy in a wood shop and you just want to buy one ready-made, you could check the link in the show notes. If you are handy, you can get a gist of what you want to build by looking on the internet. Consider searching the major search engines for a ventilation rim and you will find plans, images, and videos. I put two links in the show notes for some ventilation rim videos and pictures to get you started. So in the show notes for this segment, Landy Simone did talk about overwintering nukes, and we shot a video on that. I'll provide a link. If you fast forward to the 20-minute point, you'll get right to the point where Landy is talking about what I described a little bit earlier. It's not too late to give this a try. If it piques your interest, go take a peek. And let us know how it worked out for you. Segment number two, nadering as opposed to supering. If you are a waré hive beekeeper, you're probably familiar with nadering. But for all you Langstroth lot, this approach might not be something you're familiar with. Nadering is the opposite of supering. When you add a honey super, the general principle is that you are putting additional boxes on the top of the hive. In the waré method, the approach is different. The waré beekeeper adds boxes to the bottom of the hive, not the top. The theory is that keeping the lid on the hives keeps the natural heat in and is akin to how bees work in nature. It's also, in principle, supposed to keep the atmosphere from escaping inside the hive and thus maintains and retains the nest scent. One can kind of look at the nature and model to see how this goes. In theory, in a tree, bees will attach the comb to the roof and subsequently build the comb down to the bottom of the available cavity. On the outset, the bees will put brood and honey in the top and build comb below. It's said that the queen will prefer to lay eggs in fresh comb so she'll keep working her way down. Waré's belief is that bees will build down and the brood nest will move into the fresh wax, as just mentioned. Adding underneath the hive supports the notion and also allows the beekeeper to take the honey box off the top when they wish to harvest. And by example, adding two boxes under the stack in the spring is said to thwart the swarming impulse by providing the bees plenty of room to work and expand. If you ask a typical Langstroth beekeeper how bees behave, they will tell you that bees build up. Taking what was just mentioned, this is perhaps not natural, as in a tree they build down. So why is it that we are all successful in getting bees to build out honey boxes placed over a brood chamber in a Langstroth hive? Bees are opportunistic, and when nectar is available, they will build wherever there is room. If the space is up, they will build up. If you look at the practices of a top bar hive, if the space is out horizontally, they will build out horizontally. If you know who Sam Comfort is, he has shown that they will build in a cardboard box or other containers. They're just not fussy about this. It is known that putting space above is a stimulus to bees, and they will work to fill that space when it's a viable time of year to do so. In other words, they have nectar where they can build wax. This is why the technique of checkerboarding works. So I don't have any practical experience with a waré hive, but I would venture to say that if you left the hive to its devices and keep adding space underneath, that the bees will store honey on top and that the queen will keep moving down into the fresh comb as waré had envisioned. Perhaps there's a dynamic about brood comb that has a pheromone in it that I'm not considering, but principally if the bees put honey in the top, she's going to have to go down. I'm reminded to say that a waré hive has smaller dimensions, so there's not as much opportunity to store honey in the periphery when compared to a Langstroth hive. So nadering a hive can be done in one of two ways. One can lift a hive and put multiple boxes at the beginning of the season, or you could put one under, come back later, add another, and keep going until they get to the point where you need to reverse the pattern and have them contract. 
the box, as mentioned, is smaller and in principle easier to lift the hive. But I've seen some tall, wary hives, and I would imagine that that lifting problem is one of the reasons that beekeeping has moved on to the National and Langstroth hives, which allows you to add on top, but that's speculation on my part. There are contraptions on the internet with rigs and pulleys for lifting wary hives for nadering. I could speculate that this is for two reasons. First, it does use technology to move heavy loads and saves the back of the beekeeper. And second, it allows the whole hive to be moved as a unit and not to be disturbed. One such lift design comes from Marc Gatineau from France and it resembles a guillotine. Phil Chandler has a little write-up on his page, biobees.com, and I'll provide a link in the show notes so you can see what it looks like. Looking at this, I see the reasoning behind such sturdy handles in the wary hive design. So one fact about wary hives that is often cited as an appeal is that you only need a small amount of smoke, if any, to work the bees. Another simple principle is the hive is heavy, but it probably has honey on top, and that can be taken off and harvested to lighten up the load. I have a Kevin moment here. Wouldn't this mean that the honey is stored in an area where the brood was raised? In a Langstroth hive, most honey chambers have not seen brood and therefore would not be tainted by bee activity. Specifically, when bees have brood, larvae cast off outputs, so to speak. And when you do a crush and strain, well, I'll leave it to your imagination as to what could be in your honey. I'm going to have to ask about this more as a curiosity. End of Kevin moment. Of course, the main point of nadering is that it does not disturb the bees, and it is said to improve colony health because you're not dismantling the hive or lifting the lid to inspect the brood chamber. If ropes and rigs and block and tackle is not your thing, you can in fact super a wary hive, and some do that. Nadering, supering, interesting ideas, and dare I say it could be used in principle on both the ware and the Langstroth hives. Hmm, I'm going to have to give that some thought over the years. And I have heard, and I seem to recall, Tim Ives talking about nadering in some respects. Maybe I'll go back and listen to that presentation again. So now you know what nadering is and you have some basic principles on this. And I guess as a footnote, I should talk about my desire to have a wary hive. I've mentioned in the past that this was an objective of mine, and I've come to the realization that time is a limiting factor. It takes time to procure and build a hive that has that many parts. I was thinking about building it literally in the wood shop and buying all the wood. You have to factor in the fact that I have a cold garage with no heat and boxes that are ideally made out of one-inch red cedar, which is not something you could buy at the local box store. And one could do the math and say that the case to buy before build is the better option here. I also know that these things have a lot of parts. There's a lot of engineering going on for something so simple. I think I might have to ask Santa to consider one of these hives for my Christmas list. But in the interim, I just added a book to my wish list in Amazon about wary hives and some websites that I've been bookmarking lately and reading up on the topic to get more zen with the concepts, if you will. If you have a hankering for some of these ideas, you could search for ware and nadering on Bing, or dare I say Google, and you'll find all kinds of information. Look for a link to the Ware Lifts from BioBees.com in the show notes, which I mentioned before, and while you're there, have a look around Phil's Ware section of his page. There's lots to see there. The title for segment number three is RFID Bees. There was an interesting article that made the circles of beekeeping sharing forums not too long ago about attaching radio frequency identification tags to bees. It made a determination that some foraging bees are much more active than others. 
It's a cool finding, but truth be told, I was more interested in the science behind RFID technologies. I recall seeing bees being tracked in the flight from the hive to a forage source from the movie More Than Honey. In the movie, the bees had a transmitter, or trans, yeah, it was just a single transmitter, affixed to their thorax, and the research scientists were following the bees' flight path from the hive to a feeding station and back. They literally had flight paths on a radar screen. How cool would it be to be able to see that? At work, we're experimenting with beacon technologies, among other things, in the area of the team that I lead for mobility. These beacon devices are passive devices that you have a low energy transmitter, and when they come into a range, the signal is received and an activity can be programmed on a device that is programmed to read them. For simplicity purposes, you can use these beacons in primarily one of two ways. Affix them to something or let them ride on something. To illustrate what I mean, suppose the Olive Garden restaurant chain deployed beacons in their lobbies. As a shopper, you could walk into the restaurant and using their app, it would alert you to the special of the days when you come into range. You could picture how retail can consider using this. Walmart could provide you with a notification of a special sale in the men's department when you were in that part of the store. They could tell you of a credit card offer when you get to checkout. These ideas were most widely probably shown in the movie The Minority Report, if you remember that scene where Tom Cruise is walking through and being accosted by different advertisers calling him by name. Now, another use for this technology is like an identity tag. Picture a set of beacons in your home, one in your living room, one in the kitchen, one in the dining room, one in your foyer, whatever you have in your house. And perhaps you have a thing about where you put your keys. You could put a beacon on your key ring and every time it passes from one zone to another, a log entry can be registered. All you would have to do is open the app to know where your keys are. Oh, they're in the kitchen. So in the example of the article, the RFID experiment took the beacon concept to a different level. They can tell when something is in range of a particular sensor, say returning to the hive, and they track the bee leaving as well. They set up readers at feeding stations and track arrivals coming and going. As it appears, this is what they did in that study. And to me, I think it would be really cool if we could dream up of a technology where we could tag our bees in our local yard and go inside and watch them fly on a map to wherever they're foraging. To know where they're foraging and how often, to understand the floral sources and the time of days that they're out. Instrumentation offerings in this area is a growing field. We've talked about it here in the past, and citizen scientists who are using things like Intel mini computer, you know, the little mini computer boards, Raspberry Pi, they're doing some really cool thing. To me, this is like the ham radio CB age of when I was a kid, the tankering notions from my past for the new generation. So the article itself, the conclusion indicated that by tagging the bees, they were able to discover that 20% of the foraging bees in the hive brought home more than half the nectar and pollen gathered to feed the colony. They coined the term for this type of bee as an elite bee with the notion that some bees appear to be inherently better than others at this. In an interesting twist, they went even further with the experiment where they identified the elite bees took them out of the colony and found that they were replaced by ordinary bees. The ordinary bees that were in the 80% of the pool who simply weren't doing what the elite bees were doing. So let me state that another way to make sure there's no confusion. Take 100 bees and know that 20% through observation are identified as overachievers when compared to the rest of the population. Remove those 20 bees, and of the 80 remaining bees, a subset of them will rise up and become replacement overachievers. 
Interesting. To me, this is similar to the notion that if all foragers in a colony were wiped out, say, by a pesticide kill, the plasticity of the division of labor in the hive would necessitate others in the hive to fill the gap. Bees are pretty much stimulus machines, and lack of forage coming into the hive in this example would be the stimulus to create more foragers through a recruitment method that the bees have. Perhaps it's the superorganism's best interest to use 20% of the workforce for super gatherers and keep the 80% in the background for reserve. I'm not sure. I'm kind of riffing on the notion at this point, and I don't want to skew the message with my musings, but again, this does demonstrate that the ecosystem of bees is an amazing thing. I do long for the days where we can have some instrumentation to learn about our bees' foraging habits at home and hope that it's something that develops over time and at a cost that can be readily affordable. It would be so cool to sit in your living room and watch your bees working and see what they're doing. So as you might guess, we'll provide a link to the RFID Bees article in our show notes. Well, most of our episodes have about three segments, but every once in a while we sneak in a fourth one. I must have a lot to say today because here we go with segment number four. This one I call Dream a Little Dream. I've been thinking about my 2015 strategy and it goes something like this. I need to have enough hives to keep my hobby operation functional. I have to define what that means to me. And what that means to me is two things primarily. The first thing is that having enough honeybees to make honey is important. I literally get stopped every day and asked if I have honey for sale. Neighbors, friends, relatives, co-workers, everybody wants honey. The other morning, I was out walking for some exercise at about 5.15 a.m. When a jeep pulled up, it was pitch black. It was someone who lives down the road and knows that I have bees, and you guessed it, he wanted to know if I had any honey for sale. I sure would like to, at some point, produce enough honey and say, yeah, I have some, and can sell it. And at some point, I might even want to have hives to ramp up to honey selling operation in the neighborhood, but that's a future objective. But at minimum, I need to replenish the honey jars that we have on the cupboards of our own home. We have honey from our past batches, but we're going to run out if we don't get some successful harvests next season. So I said two objectives. The first one is honey. And I have to share that primarily for my wife, she'll tolerate all this beekeeping stuff if she knows there's honey in our future. She knows how much I enjoy beekeeping, and that's important for her too, and she enjoys it also. But the fact of the matter is having honey at home is a huge bonus, and why do it if you're not going to, at minimum, have honey for your family? I said two objectives. The second objective is to have enough bees. To have enough bees. What I mean about this is I want to have enough bees to recover and to keep the honey operation functional. And I also want to learn and you have to have bees to keep doing that. So the million dollar question is how many hives do you need to keep that going? I know from past experience and experimenting that I played around with one, two, three, four, five hives, but I've never gone any higher than that. And every year I find myself, because of what I'm doing, and mind you, sometimes self-inflicted, at a poverty of bees. I can also tell you that this year has educated me to the fact that maintaining a dozen hives is a chore. I'm a hobby beekeeper. And I spent a lot of time this year. You know, building boxes is a lot of work. But I console myself that it is a one-time investment, and I'm hoping that I put all of that behind me, and now I have this equipment up and running. 
But if I am to do things where I'm going to produce honey, I'm still going to need some additional equipment. So I have some more equipment to factor into my operation in the future. Now, one of my dreams is to potentially start an outyard. My recent dreams have been about finding a field with a perfect pasture that is perfect for the bees. I only have to look at a couple of examples. The first is the field next door to my property, which is now corn. I swear to you that when it was a wild vegetation field, it was easier to keep bees here. It used to be a regular pasture. Wildflowers, weeds, multiflora rows, and other things. They didn't do anything with it for years and years. The honey tasted better back then, and I swear the bees were healthier and easier to maintain, but now it's corn. The other thing that I can look to for an example is our Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association Club Hives. They're sitting on a big field over in the Reddington area, and typical MO for the field is to let it grow. Those hives are always in pretty reasonable shape, and they should be. They have plenty to forage on, acres and acres. Now, I know that Bob Kloss has had to feed them on occasion, and I know the beekeeper who maintained them before Bob also fed them, but mostly they're self-sustaining. This year, the county did something unusual, and they cut the field down to a nub. I mean, shorter than you cut your grass. They did this because they were shooting off fireworks for a county celebration event and didn't want to set the field on fire. Yes, the field will grow back, but I have to wonder how much it set those hives back this year, and it'll be interesting to see how they fare in the spring. Now, normally when we open these hives, they are loaded with pollen variants and heavy with nectar and honey all year long. The bees are happy, industrious, and gentle, and why wouldn't they be? So switching gears, I know of a notion. Having listened to Solomon Parker, a treatment-free podcaster that just started up, he has this thing called expansion model beekeeping. I don't know what that is. I've never been on Solomon's site and I've never heard him describe it to anyone or talk about it. I've kind of peeked in on the Treatment Free Beekeepers Facebook page, but don't see it mentioned there yet. My guess is it might be the same notion of what I'm running through is how many hives do you have and how many do you need to keep an operation running? Maybe I'm completely wrong, but that's not the point. The one thing that I think I've concluded is that one to two hives is generally not enough to keep you sustainable. You're going to have to get them on the treatment treadmill, and even that's not a guarantee of survival. Or you're going to have to do what some people I know do, which is to buy bees over and over and over again, and I'm not all about that. I guess at some point people have proper places to put their bees. They have great forage. They have incredible nutrition. I don't know. Again, I struggle with this all the time. It'll be interesting to me to see the next couple of years whether 8, 10, 12 hives is enough to meet those two objectives. To find a way to produce honey to sell, give away, give to relatives, things like that, and even to have some to share at honey tastings that we have on occasion as part of the association. It would be nice to have some discretionary honey for that. Oh, and not to forget to have honey for the bees that can't be lost in this whole formula. Have to have honey to feed back to the bees. No more sugar solution. So another thing that I've been talking about is having enough bees to have a nucleus program. I want to gain an understanding of queen banks and mating nukes, comb factories and resources on reserve. I want to wear a hive. Still want to try that, as you've heard earlier. I want to learn more about my top bar, and I'm considering building a second one, by the way. The common denominator in all these things, it requires bees. So it'll be interesting to see over the next two years where I'm going to go with this. 
I'm already to the point where I recognize that my management style is going to change. I'm going to have to leave them be. I won't have time to overmanage, and my management techniques will be more about critical intervention versus meddling in the colonies. I see this as a maturation going from a novice to an intermediate beekeeper, and I think it's a good thing. I can't profess that I won't tinker in what is my yard right here. And for that, I will always strive to learn. But if and when I put bees out in a separate yard and even some of the excess stock in my house, I'm going to be more hands off. No treatments, no excessive monitoring. Just put them in a box and let them be natural. Now, I want to balance these statements with the notion that if it's evident that an intervention is needed, I will not be neglectful. I will be conservative, but if we have a dearth and everything is starving, I won't let them perish. If I do a good job and scout out the right conditions for a proper yard, that shouldn't be a problem. But I won't be negligent of my responsibilities to be a beekeeper, not a bee haver. I have been looking into others that have gone this route, as it can't be unique, this principle that I'm dreaming of. I found that some have had success, and I found anecdotally that a couple of people who went this way whole hog into treatment-free approach and lost everything they had. Probably legitimate reasons to blame for that, which I'd chuck up to maybe a poor plan, they crash and burn, they had a wrong location, or they just quite frankly don't know what they're doing. There's so many factors forensically that could lead to that. But I think that if I lost all of my hives, I'd quit. I'd throw in the towel. <laughs> what I really want to achieve is a subset of bees and just leave them be. I really want to develop local stock. I really want to go out and strengthen this approach by finding feral bees in my area and put them in my boxes. I want those genetics to support this notion also. So there is a notion to this year's ramp up of hives, and I don't think I've ever shared the logic in public before, so now there you have it. At some point, I'm going to circle back and see if I can find out what this expansion model beekeeping thing is that Solomon Parker is talking about. Maybe he has some ideas that I should consider while I'm looking at this, and if he's willing to share the wealth, I'd be happy to look in and learn. To me, this is akin to the Tim Ives 3D method, and that's in the mix too. There's no place that I know of that you can find a recipe for how Tim does what he's doing, but I know a lot of beekeepers are experimenting with the concepts, and it seems to be going in a positive direction for them. And I too think that providing three deeps for the brood chamber is a good idea, and more and more experience with beekeepers, they're starting to share what they're learning. This is a Kevin moment. Solomon's podcast recently had a multiple part release on a conversation with Michael Bush. It was a great listen. I'm just always astonished at the insightfulness of Michael Bush and how he sees the world of beekeeping. Every once in a while in this world, you run across somebody who just gets it. And he also has the practical knowledge to back it up. I wonder what Michael does for a living. That's an interesting question. You would think that he's a full-time beekeeper given his wealth of experience, but I'm pretty confident that he has a real job outside of beekeeping and somebody should pay him off to become a full-time researcher, but not in the university kind of way. No offense to university type people. He's akin in my mind to some incredible individual contributions to people who do it simply because they love the bees and their insightfulness is beyond what normal beekeepers can bring to the party. I think of the late George Emery and all his documentation as another example that comes to mind. Mike's work is just amazing and we beekeepers don't know how fortunate we are to have individuals such as this contribute to the passion of beekeeping that we love. So final thing on this Kevin moment, as an aside, if you're interested in Solomon's podcast, look up treatment-free beekeeping on iTunes. My understanding is that you can subscribe to it there now. 
So back to the topic at hand, the notion of having a bunch of hives gets me to thinking about what we'll tell our beekeepers at our local association meetings come springtime. We have a reasonable number of beekeepers that have been keeping bees for a while. Is it time to tell them that you want to be in it for the long haul? You know, we always recommend don't buy one, but buy two so you can compare and contrast. Now, dare I say, you have to have a dozen? (laughs) That's an interesting thing. One of the challenges that I have to keep in mind is that I'm mostly a weekend beekeeper. I work for a living. I'm up in the morning and out. Sometimes I don't get home until 8 p.m. or dark on many nights. If it rains on the weekends, and fortunately this year it was dry and didn't rain at all, so I got in a lot of beekeeping, good beekeeping time, but some years it rains every darn weekend and then you're really screwed. So can I go in and tell people, if you want to have hive success and be treatment free, hands off, you got to have 12 hives? The investment in equipment, in equipment alone, I think some people are just going to think we're nuts. If you're going to grow your operation to that size, and by chance you get a super drought, and the only way you're going to have your hives survive is to feed them, well, that could get expensive. So you have to give full disclosure as to what this means. The complexity of managing 12 hives versus 2 hives really has to be in your consideration if you're going to go this route. So this is what's on my mind lately in planning for 2015. I have a reasonable amount of hives in my yard. I might put one or two more maybe next year. And then the next place is for me to go out somewhere. Lest I not forget that I need to have a blessing from the boss... Uh, That is a consideration in our household, and I'm guessing for many of you it is too. Um, Just the simple fall management things around my home. Firewood, checking the chimneys to make sure they're clear, cleaning up the leaves, summer projects, all suffered this year while I was building out my apiary. Sometimes it even gets me to thinking I'm off the deep end with all of this stuff. And that kind of goes for the podcast, too, but we won't let that suffer. So, again, I say there you have it. These are some of my thoughts of 2015, and I don't think I've ever stated my intentions out loud as to why I was building all these hives this season. And I also wanted to journal, for the record, my progress for the podcast, which was actually the original intention of doing this effort. If you go back to the primer episode and listen from the beginning... Have you been on this journey? Can you tell me how it's going to end? If you have notions to share that you have a whole bunch of hives and you leave some alone and you meddle with some and do whatever, if you've achieved this plateau, please feel free to email me about your thoughts or better yet, maybe we could schedule something to come on the show and we'll have a roundtable conversation about the pros and cons of this. So that's part of what's on tap for 2015 i guess there'll be more to come in the next episodes that wraps up our segment section for episode 66 here let's move into the back of the book we'll call roundtable number one to the podium call this one the truth is out there that's a uh, homage to my recent infatuation with the x-files does honey last forever as we've heard over and over sure (laughs) it can remain stable for decades and even centuries in sealed containers Mm, sealed containers being the operative word there keep in mind that the true quality of honey is impacted in the way that it is kept From an FAQ at Honey.com, honey is susceptible to physical and chemical changes during storage. It tends to darken and lose lose its aroma and flavor, or, as you all know, it can crystallize. These physical and chemical process changes are temperature-dependent processes, 
making the shelf life of honey difficult to define. They say, for practical purposes, a shelf life of two years is often stated for honey. I say properly processed, packaged, and stored honey retains its quality for a long, long time. In my mind, as long as you don't let moisture get in, which can make it sour, I say crack it open and enjoy the vintage honey. I know beekeepers who've been keeping bees for 50 years and have something saved from every year that they've been doing it. If, however, it was possibly tainted, the National Honey Board has this point of view. If in doubt, throw it out and purchase a new jar of honey. I would expect Honey.com to support honey sales that way. Listen, just keep it capped and closed, keep it in a proper place, and you'll be good to go. Did I answer the question? Yeah, I think I did. It lasts forever. (laughs) Reasonably taken care of, it lasts forever. Roundtable number two, NJBA fall meeting recap. Last weekend, Bob Kloss and I rode down together to see Dr. Keith Delaplane speak. Keith did two sections, two segments, two talks, whatever you want to say. Outstanding work. And rather than recap it, I'm going to do something different. I recorded both videos and Keith said it was okay to distribute those. I'm going to put those up on our YouTube channel and you can go watch what the highlights were. I thought his uh, talk specifically about the superorganism was really insightful. And he talked about the push and pull and the systems inside the hive and related them in terms that pretty much everybody could understand. Um, The toxicity inside the hive absorbed by the comb, which is like the liver things like that. It was really pretty cool the way he talked about it. In typical fashion, I would do a recap, but this time I'm going to say to you, go invest the time to watch the videos. Uh, They're not posted yet, but they'll probably be posted by mid-November. It's the NWNJBA channel on YouTube. They also had a disaster relief program speaker there. The person talked about how to register your hives for disaster relief and should a disaster encounter in New Jersey, they would replace your hives. The stipulation for it, if my memory serves me correctly, my memory is not that sharp right at the moment, is that you had to register them and you had to have uh, some proof that you were a commercial operation. But the key to this is that it would replace your hives up to a certain point and or cover your losses if a disaster occurred that involved a bunch of different things. You could think Hurricane Katrina, you could think a long drought, you could think some sort of temperature problem. Uh, did not cover bears, but that was an interesting talk also. Recorded that, and at some point I will also post it up. Uh, It's been a very, very busy week, and this is kind of cheap of me not to cover these. I haven't had a chance to go back through and take notes out of these. And tomorrow morning, I'm heading to Las Vegas for work, so I just haven't had time to process them. But when I get back and when I find some time, I will put things out. Two little trinkets that I bought while I was there. First one was a hive tool, and this thing is really interesting. I will say to you that my go-to tool is the Easy Pry Hive Tool. No, I don't get paid for that. It's just one of my favorite instruments. But I saw something there called a Jero, J-E-R-O. It's a really um, sturdy-looking hive tool that looks like a pry bar. This one is so sharp, I think you could chisel wood with it. It's thin and narrow, thick and... um, its construction it will not bend and it has this short hook that you could use to pry your frames up I have a couple different affinities for equipment like this and I'm going to try this out and see how it works and then at some point after I try a bunch of different things I could do a feature on hive tools having used each one 
The other thing that I saw there was a device made out of wood and screening, which is a queen, a queen introduction device. It's something that you would put between the frames and you would put your queen in it and she can be released in there for a period of time. It gives her more room to get acclimated inside the hive and then you just flip a little door that's on this and the queen can get out. And when I come back from Las Vegas, I'll take that out and shoot a little feature on it and post it up so you can see what it looks like. I'll end this roundtable with saying thanks to the NJBA and Keith Delaplane for allowing us to record this. I haven't looked at the footage, but I'm guessing it's okay, and I don't have problems with that. Um, and I'm looking forward to putting those up and getting to watch them again. Roundtable number three, do LED lights attract bugs? I found the answer to this on a website called ledlights.org in their FAQ section. Many people ask this question, and the short answer is no. Hmm. I don't know if practical experience would tell me that's true, but... This is what the website FAQ has to say. There are many theories where the potential for LED lights can attract insects. However, scientists are adamant in their beliefs that LED lights do not attract bugs because insects, in general, are attracted to the ultraviolet light as it's the only light in the spectrum their vision can detect. However, there are flower nectars that cannot be seen by the naked eye which do attract bugs. And we know that for our beloved bees. Some individuals believe that in certain cases, LED lights that are coated in these nectars may attract small numbers of bugs. Well, first off, if it's coated with some sort of nectar and it didn't come from the factory that way, that means bugs had to get there to coat it. Anyway, in contrast to other forms of lighting, it is believed that there's a much lower chance that bugs will be attracted to LED lights. For more information on this, you can go to ledlights.org and check out their FAQ section, and we'll also post a link in the show notes. So I see by the timer here on my Audacity dashboard that I've just crossed over the hour marker and I've come to the bottom of the pile. Closing comments for the roundtable. Huey Lewis spotting, one of our colleagues at work, went to an SAP conference. And I was just talking about how big of a fan I am of Huey Lewis. And hopefully he's okay with the opening music of the podcast coming from them. They just played at the SAP TechEd conference. And I work with the SAP team all the time. And I'm so mad because I've gone to that event in the past. But this time it didn't go, and they were the entertainers. Darn. And I mentioned just a moment ago that I'm going to Las Vegas. There's a mobility conference there, which I am attending as an attendee and uh, somewhat speaker. I'll be at the Caesars Hotel over the next couple of days. Just curious, anybody out there from Las Vegas uh, would be interesting to find a little side jaunt there and go take a peek and have a shout-out. So if you are listening to this and you're in Las Vegas, send a note to Kevin at BK Corner and we'll see if we can make some arrangements to come say hello and see how you're doing. It's a fantasy far-fetched chance, but you know, one of these times I'm going to say this and it's going to turn up where we get together. So that would be kind of cool, I think. As long as you're not some sort of stalker person. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's time to close this episode down. Um, had a lot of fun producing this. Glad to get it out. I was a little worried about not being able to get to it before I left. And I'm supposed to be doing other things right now. But otherwise, uh, I've taken the time to finish this and put it to bed. I may or may not be able to get to the website before I leave. But at least the episode will be out there. So if you're looking for show notes, bear with me. I'll be back probably uh Friday or Saturday, I'll get them up if I don't get them up today before I leave. But um, just thanks, everybody, for listening. Appreciate uh, all the support we get around here. And hope you found this episode interesting. 
I haven't said this for a while. If you have any topics of interest that you want us to talk about, send them over. I know I have one on the pile that came in from a listener that they wanted to ask about um, raising queens, which I don't have experience about, but I can look into. And I was fascinated. I know there's a Doolittle model and a couple other ones. It would be interesting to look into how they work. Another one is um, a listener wrote in and asked about my conjecture that, I don't even, is conjecture the right word? I think it is. About my notion that queens should be replaced because they just don't carry on well enough. And isn't this counterintuitive to sustainable? I wanted to address that email. I haven't had a chance to write a good commentary to it. But uh, we're going to sneak that one into an episode coming up. And that's been sitting on the pile forever. So forgive me for waiting for that answer. But now that we're getting to wintertime and I have less time to spend with the bees and more time indoors when the weather is inhospitable, I should be able to get to more of these topics. So with that, uh, we're having guests over this afternoon and I hear people arriving. So it is time to bid adieu. Thanks for listening. And take care. Be well, everyone.